Good morning. As we continue our study of the book of Ephesians, we will uh, pick up today at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Uh, and we welcome all of you and our listening audience on KFUO. So Ephesians 1, verse 15. Now, last week, we studied the first 14 verses as a prayer uh, of praise, a prayer of benediction, a prayer of, prayer of blessing uh, of God for all he has done for us. And it was very Trinitarian. There was a section on the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But in each section... I think we counted 10 or 11 times. It says that these things occurred and God worked them in Christ. Okay. Now that Trinitarian emphasis continues because verses 15 to 23 are also part of the introduction of the, uh, of the book. So, for this reason, because I heard concerning your faith in the Lord Jesus and the love toward all the saints. All right. Many times in Paul's opening words, he commends the people for what he has heard about them. Now, again, he's not writing to people he doesn't know. He spent three years here. He knows them well. He knows them well. But he has heard of their faith in the Lord and their love for all the saints. There are three sections in the verses 15 to 23. Thanksgiving, supplication, and praise. So this first verse is thanksgiving, as he will say, for this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward, which is toward all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you. I do not uh, stop giving thanks for you. Uh, the, the word there is Eucharisto. Eucharist. And that means thanksgiving. Okay? He doesn't stop thanking God for them that they are continuing in their faith and their love for the saints. That's what we've talked about before, both the horizontal and the vertical relationship. But then he goes on, making remembrance concerning you at the time of my prayer. Uh, the emphasis that Paul was a Jew, and the Jews had specific times a day they prayed. And sometimes we got the canonical hours from that. You know, you pray at third hour, sixth hour, ninth hour. So at the time of his prayers. So now we've already switched from Thanksgiving to supplication. So what is he praying for them? Verse 17. In order that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, I give to you the Spirit. Okay. Paul is still in a Trinitarian, Trinitarian mood. 
he's mentioning Father, Son, and Holy Spirit again. Okay? This spirit should not be viewed as the human spirit because the human spirit can't give you these things, but as the Holy Spirit. So his prayer for them is that God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. Now let's talk about the word glory for a while. We haven't really dealt with that. Glory is used throughout the, the scriptures, and it's defined as time at times as splendor, radiance, beauty. But what we really get down when we really get down to it, the, the word is doxa, and it comes from the verb dokeo, meaning to think or reason. What we're probably talking about here when we talk about glory is we're going to talk about the reputation and the honor of the person being talked about. You think about those things. The reputation and the honor. So, when we talk about the glory of God, we're talking about his reputation and his honor. Now, the glory of God is mentioned a lot in the Old Testament, especially when the Ark of the Covenant, the glory of the Lord, descended on the Ark of the Covenant. It was either in a pillar of fire or a pillar of cloud. But the real focus of the word glory comes out in the New Testament. And if we do a study of glory, what we find is the ultimate glory of God first rested on the ark, but the ultimate glory of God was the incarnation of Jesus Christ when he was among us. When he was among us and his atonement. So the glory of God was truly on display in the incarnation of Jesus Christ and his atonement for us. And uh, that's where we need to focus. So the father of glory means he's the father of the true glory of Christ. He has his true glory in sending his son for us. That's the emphasis here. The father of glory might give to us the spirit of three things, wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, where do these three things come from? Well, if we think real hard, we can turn over to Isaiah chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse two and following. We'll just read from verse one. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. This is a prophecy of Christ. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The three things we have mentioned in Ephesians are found within these verses of what God says he's going to put on Jesus Christ. Now, 
he put these on his son. Uh, we also know that we are now the children of God. And many of the gifts that Christ had, he wants us to have. So they're mentioned here in the Old Testament. Now, as believers in Jesus Christ, he prays for us that the Spirit will give us wisdom, revelation, or understanding in the knowledge, in his knowledge, or knowledge of him. Okay? This is his prayer for us, his first supplication for us, that he will, we will receive same blessings that the Spirit bestowed on Christ. Okay? Spirit bestowed on Christ. And this is a good reminder to us that at no time are we done learning about God and the Lord Jesus. At no time. There is no time in a human being's life that they can say, I know everything. Okay? Not going to happen. And people always ask questions like, well, golly, how do you preach at Christmas every year? I mean, how do you do that? It's the same story. But I can guarantee you, when you sit down to get ready to write a sermon for Christmas and you study it again, something else grabs you. And it happens every time. Something else grabs you that you've never really noticed before or you've never dealt with before. That's the way it is with God's Word. And we can never... You know, you ever, you ever watch TV shows? Uh, my one of my favorites is Match. Okay, always has been. I've seen every episode multiple times, but every time you watch it, you pick up another one-liner that somebody says that you haven't heard before. Well, God's word's better than that. Every time you study it, you get something else, okay? You can never say. So, what he's praying here for is the Spirit will give us wisdom, revelation, or understanding in him. He wants every Christian to have that. But he requests more. Enlightening the eyes of your hearts. Now, let's talk about this in a minute. When we look back at the miracles of Jesus, one of the ones that always stands out is the healing of the man that was born blind in John chapter 9. And if we read that chapter carefully, at the first of that chapter, Jesus heals the man and gives him back his physical sight. But if we keep reading, later in the chapter, the man expresses spiritual understanding in who Jesus is. The same thing could be said of the Apostle Paul when he was struck blind on the way to Damascus. Ananias came and gave him back his physical sight, but... It then says he was baptized and began preaching immediately. 
baptism gave him his spiritual sight. So there's a link. And if you look at these things, there, there's this link. What's being talked about here is spiritual sight. Spiritual sight. Enlightening the eyes of your heart. Not your physical eyes, but enlightening the eyes of your heart. Seeing and understanding spiritual things. So he prays for you to have knowledge and understanding and wisdom. And if you have that in his word, what happens? The eyes of your heart are enlightened. The light comes on. Okay? The light comes on. There is spiritual understanding. Okay? So that you may know uh, what is the hope of his calling. Okay. We're called by God. He chose us. We do not choose him. Now, that calling may have occurred in a couple of ways. It could have been at your baptism. Okay? You were called. It could also have been, maybe later in life, when you heard the message of the gospel and came to faith in Christ. But no matter how you were called, it was a call to hope. It was a call to hope. You were dead in trespasses and sins. That passage is coming up. But when you were called, you were called out of that into hope. Now, when we talk about hope, it's closely linked with faith, but its focus is more on the things to come. The ultimate hope of every Christian is eternal life with God. So, when you're called by the gospel, the gospel promise tells you that your sins are forgiven and you have eternal life. That's your hope from that time forth. So that's what's being referred to here. The hope of your, of his call. Notice it emphasizes not your call, his call to you. To what is the hope of his call, and then a second one. There's three of them. What is the, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Okay. What is the riches? Uh, what does that word mean? It means inexhaustible. Never stops. Never runs out. Never ends. Inexhaustible. So it's telling us his inexhaustible, the inexhaustion of his glory, of his inheritance. Again, he's the one that gives us this inheritance. And if we go back, the unending or the inexhaustible of his glory, what's the inexhaustible? Well, that begins to make sense that the glory is Christ, the incarnation and the atonement of Christ. And again, it's pointing you towards the hope of your inheritance. 
He gives it to you in Christ. Okay, so that's the second one. And then finally, what is the surpassing greatness of his power in us who believe according to the working of his great might? In verse 19, there are four loans. Different words that talk about the strength and the might of God. Four words. So it says, and what is the surpassing greatness, that is, of his power, dunamis, in us who believe, those who believe, according to the working of his Mighty power, two more different words. So the focus of 19 is absolutely and totally on the power of God, his might that works in us. Now, usually when there are that many words used about power and might in even the New Testament, the example that Paul would give is the power and might that he showed when he created the world. Creation was the great show of power and might for the world when he created the world. It points to creation because the ultimate power would be that, but not here. When he talks about his mighty power here, it is not about creating the world. It is about Jesus Christ. Remember, we talked about his glory being his greatest glory, his, the incarnation and atonement. So he starts in. How did he work this great power and might? It was worked in Christ. He raised him from the dead. That's the first thing he did. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenlies. There are four words ultimately used about what God did in Christ to show his power. The first one, he raised him from the dead. Okay? He raised him from the dead. That was uh, God accepting the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for our sins and conquering our greatest enemy, which is death. Now, it's funny. Uh, if you go through the New Testament, it says, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, Jesus raised himself from the dead, and the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Okay? So don't let that confuse you. The whole Trinity was involved in this. But here it's referring to God the Father, God of glory, the Father of glory, its greatest glory, the atonement, okay, um, is being referred to. So he raised his son from the dead. Then he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This is an important concept. We're talking about the power and might of God. Being seated at his right hand means he shared his throne with him. The other thing the seating emphasizes is that his work of atonement was done. It was finished. 
this passage has uh, been a source of problems because there are those, not Lutherans, there are those that say the seating of Christ at his right hand, and they look at the right hand of God as a place. Now, we've talked about this before, as a place. In other words, Christ is seated at a specific place. Then they deduce from that, since Christ is seated at a specific place, he can't be in all places in the sacrament. Okay? Can't be in all places in the sacrament. We believe in the real presence. Unfortunately, there are some churches that believe in the real absence. Because they think he's nailed to a chair in heaven. We're talking about the power and might of God. If you study the term, the right hand of God, from Genesis on, you will find out it never means a place. First of all, God doesn't have a right hand. I hate to break this to you. Jesus did. God doesn't. He's a spirit. But he always talks about himself so we can understand him in human terms. And the term for that is anthropomorphism. Okay? God attributes human parts to him so we can understand him. When he says the right hand of God, if we trace that term all through the Old Testament, what we find out is the right hand of God always means only one thing. Power. How? Jesus Christ is not seated in a seat. He is seated in power. So that he has the power of God and can continue to do all things. So it's the power of God. Therefore, yes, he has the power to be present in the sacrament because his power is everywhere. Okay? So he is seated in power. Now, he was seated in power before he came into the world. He had all power. He was God. But now he is seated in power as both true man and true God. True man and true God. And that's the difference. So he's risen. He's seated. There's more. And he has subordinated all rulers, authorities, powers, and dominions. Now, we see lists like this throughout the New Testament. It's very difficult to assign exact uh, who this exactly is. But it's kind of an all-inclusive to say anything that has any power or any authority is subjected to him in heaven on on earth. Material, spiritual. Now, there are some that have tried to, in the intertestamental writings, uh, there are ranks of angels, and some have tried to put together uh, which one of these represents which rank of angels. It doesn't work. Don't, don't go there. It's simply saying 
he's over everything. Especially the demons. Especially the spiritual forces of evil. He's over it all. And then again, and every name which is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. All right, so his name is greater. Remember that passage in Philippians, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of things in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's this. Okay. In other words, there is nothing that is not under him. Nothing. He has power over it all. Everything has been subordinated to him. But we're not done. And all things are placed under his feet. Okay? And he is appointed or made head concerning all the church, concerning all in the church. All right, so let's talk about the last one. All things are put under his feet. That is an imagery that says he has power over them, and the image of a footstool for his feet is an image of judgment. He's going to judge. He's not only over all these things, he's going to judge them. And especially, and of course, this is his enemies, all who do not believe and all who are of the realm of Satan. Human and spiritual. We could name a few right now, but we won't. So, then he's made head over everything uh, in the church. So, now he is head. Uh, Usually when we think of head, oh, and and it goes on and says, uh, head of his church, which is his body. Now, usually when we think of this imagery, we think of the church as members and distinctive gifts. Everybody's different. Everybody performs a role. Everybody has been blessed by God in different ways. And there's ears and eyes and everything. But that's not the image here. He is the head of his body, the church. We're thinking here of the body as a unity. The unity of the body is dependent on the head. The head is the one that makes the decisions. The head is what guides you. The head is what leads you. There's no such thing as a living body without a head. And the head is the key. When we talk about Christ being the head, means he not only leads and guides us, he redeems us, he gives us life, he gives us hope, he gives us faith, he gives us everything. He is the head. He is the head. Okay. He is the head. So we have these four things. He's raised from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of God. He has all things subordinated to him, and he is appointed as the head. Okay. This is how God shows the power of his might. And as we've said, usually it points to creation. Here it points to Christ. And all he did and worked 
in Jesus Christ. That's the emphasis. All right. Now, as we look at the last verse, this is the verse of praise. We've been dealing with supplication. Now, there is a verse of, of uh, praise, and it's, uh, it's really, it's very short, but it summarizes everything. Because it says, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the one who fulfills all in all is Christ because he fulfills all the promises of God. And because he fulfills all the promises of God, he's the fulfillment of everything else. So, this is a verse of praise, a, a summary here of what Paul has just been through, um, and this is the close, true close of the introduction. Okay, if you look at the primary words, and we did a little of this last week. If you look at the primary words used in the introduction, the first chapter, the words like inheritance, calling. Uh, spirit, uh, 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 if you just go through it, all those words show up again in Ephesians. And many of them multiple times. So in the writing of the first chapter, he sets the stage for all the rest of the book. All the rest of the book. All right, let me stop there and see if there are any comments, questions, and then we might do a couple of more verses if you don't have any. Yeah, Dennis. That, that is true. Um, God, uh, Dennis said uh, the study notes in the Concordia Bible say that the power of God is not always good news. It is with two words added, in Christ. But the power of God, apart from that, we get into the whole thing of everything put under his feet and every ruler, authority, power, dominion is under him. That's law. Now, it's good news for us because it means that these things are going to be judged, but it's bad news for them. So there is, just like everything else, law and gospel. Yes, ma'am. Leslie. Yes. Um, she's saying it's such a comfort to know that this is saying that the power of God is worth at work in us. You know, the power of God that created the world is working to keep you in the faith. That's comforting. The power of God is working to see that you have eternal life and ordering all things as the head of the church to make sure it happens. That's comforting. That's comforting. Anything else? Yes, sir. Pastor Greg Smith, my old friend. Yes. Totally agree. They need our prayers. They need our prayers. All right. Anything else? All right, let's start two. This will make you feel good, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. Have a good day. Hey. 
Now, let's talk about the word dead. What we're talking about here is a spiritual death. There's all these zombie shows out now, The Walking Dead. A person that doesn't know Jesus Christ is walking dead. Spiritually dead. Sin kills. Sin kills. And so what we're going to see is you know, there's two phrases. And it's gonna and it's gonna get there. You're either in dead in trespasses and sins or alive in Jesus Christ. That's what it is. Alive in Jesus Christ. Now the word uh trespasses and sins, they're basically they're two different Greek words, but they're 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 basically the same. And notice how it says, in which you once walked. In which you once walked. You either walk and follow Jesus Christ, or you walk in the course of this world, is what it says. The course of this world. Um, so, being dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to this age of, uh, according to the age of this world. In other words, it's worldly, it's material, uh, it's going after worldly things. Uh, and there's more to the definition. According to or after the prince of the power of the air or the prince of the authority of the air. Okay? That is Satan. Now, what does the air refer to? The level under heaven where spiritual good and evil battle. That's basically what it's what it is, where spiritual good and evil matter, where demons are active, where angels are active as it affects this earth. So what it's saying is uh, you walk in um, this, and so you know where Luther's then is getting the devil, the world, and ultimately our flesh. Okay, but he goes on. According to the prince, authority of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit which now works in the sons of disobedience. All right? The spirit, and we're not saying spirit capital S, Spirit. It's the spirit of things. It's the spirit of evil, which now works in the sons of disobedience. That's those who do not believe in Jesus Christ. Okay? In which also you all, okay? We're uh, literally turned upside down then in the desires of your flesh, doing the will of the flesh and mind, and being uh, by nature children of wrath like the rest. Okay. So, um, we're turned upside down, what the word means, in the desires of the flesh. Now, let's talk about the, the flesh. That doesn't just mean the body. 
because of the reference to, by nature, children of wrath, it's saying our natural nature, which is corrupted by sin. In other words, when it's talking about the flesh, it's saying that's which dwells within us that seeks to move us to sin. Our natural inclination is to sin, is to sin. According to uh, not only um, the flesh, but also our mind, okay, and being by nature, children's of wrath like the rest. Now, remember, he's predominantly speaking to Gentiles here. He's in Asia Minor, and there were undoubtedly Jews there, but he's dealing with Gentiles, okay? You were like the rest. You were like the rest. He was saying to the people of Ephesus, this is the way you used to be. This is the way you used to be. Now in Christ, it's different. We'll get there. Unfortunately, we're just about out of time. So this is where we have to stop. But uh, hopefully the gospel in 15 to 23 will tide you over uh, the last three verses that we read. So, we're beginning at sea. So he paints this picture of the power of God and the gospel in chapter 1. And now he is going to prove it. He's going to show how the power of God has worked in sinful people to bring them to redemption and salvation. And we'll pick up there next. Well, let me ask, is there any more questions or comments? Yes, Ruth. That's right. The word dead means we could not move toward God. He had to move toward us because we were dead. He had to come after us because we could not do one thing to come toward him because we were dead. We were dead. And that's a total death. Uh, some want to paint it as less than that because they want to give more man, man more credit than he deserves. Dead means dead. Okay? Dead means dead. All right. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.